0: Will you please open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter three? It is on page one thousand and two. If you're working with the pew Bibles or the ones you purchased in our hallway over there, and as you're turning there, think about some warnings that you may have received in your life that have stuck in your mind. Uh, if you grew up uh, about the time I did you might remember that there was a commercial on TV warning about drug use. and the commercial, somebody held up an egg, and they said, this is your brain, and then they had a frying pan, and they said, this is your brain on drugs, and they broke the egg, and, you know, you got the, you get the point. Or, uh, there are, I remember in my uh, high school health class, there was this poster of a woman who... Uh, was covered entirely in soot on the outside, and the caption underneath said, uh, this is what you would look like if smoking did on the inside of you, what it uh, does on the outside. I think I reversed those, but you get the idea. Uh, those are warnings, and uh, warnings get wedged in our minds. We might not like warnings. You probably never think to yourself, wow, I think I'm in the mood to kick back and read the warning labels on my pharmaceuticals today, you know? But many of them, sure, they get overblown sometimes. But they're important to keep us safe. Well, the passage that we're going to see this morning is a warning for those who are in the church. If you're here with us and you're not a Christian, I still think this passage has relevance for you, and I'll try to show that as we go through. I think it'll help you see what the Christian life is really about, but primarily this text is directed towards those inside the church, and it gives a a warning for them, and it's a really important one. You see, just as warnings about smoking and drug use can protect your physical life and the physical lives of those around you. So also, this warning in Scripture is going to protect your spiritual life and the spiritual lives of those around you. So my prayer for us as a church is that we would, as the Bible says, have ears to hear and receive the warning in Scripture. Now, uh, we're going to look primarily at chapter 3, verse 7, until the end of chapter 3. But I want to start reading at chapter 3, verse 5. And then go all the way to chapter 4, verse 2. And if you're here with us and you're new to the Bible, uh, we're so glad you're here. And just to let you know that the big numbers are the chapters and the small numbers are the verses. That'll help make a whole lot more sense. Okay. So after reading it, then we're going to talk about it. So Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify of things that would be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over all of God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they are unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you would give us the gift of faith, that you would open our hearts. They would not be hard. We would receive your word, and we would grow in faithful obedience that we would have the gift of persevering faith to hold tightly to Christ. Lord, grant us these things for the sake of Christ, who by his blood purchased many people throughout all the world, and call us into greater obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is quite a bit of material here, and we're not going to have time to cover all of it. Uh, But let me sort of survey the landscape of this passage a bit before we try to reconstruct its meaning in our lives. That's the goal, of course, to to get the meaning of this passage into our lives. Uh, First, notice here that the whole line of argument really springs forth from this conditional statement in verse 6. See that there? We are his house. That means we are part of his people. If, indeed... We hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Note there the conditionality to it. Something must be true of them if they are to be counted among God's people. And that something is persevering faith. That's the best way to describe it. I think that's what he's talking about here, persevering faith. We see the same conditionality in verse 14 as well. We'll look at both of those in more detail. I'm just kind of walking through the flow of this passage first. And notice how this element of conditionality in verse 6 sets us up for what follows. In verse 7, therefore, that is, in view of this conditionality for being a Christian, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes from Psalm 95 here, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, because it is necessary for you to persevere in your faith, don't stop listening to the word of God. Because faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. If you want to persevere in your faith, brothers and sisters, keep your heart open to God's word. You see the logic of that, don't you? But Psalm 95 here that he quotes is not simply an exhortation. It also holds before them an example, an example of the time in the nation of Israel's history when the people did stop listening to God's word and really bad things happened to them. The people back then, the readers of this passage would have known that when uh, the psalmist here or the the author of Hebrews here talks about the rebellion and the day of testing in the wilderness, that refers to the time right after the people of Israel got out of Egypt and they started grumbling and complaining and they did not listen to God's word. Oh, how easily our hearts can go astray. And then after the author looks at the lesson from the past... He warns them in the here and now because he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. See there, the point is, you don't be like them. Don't you follow their example. That's the negative side of the warning. The positive side is really fascinating and has huge implications for our life together that we'll look at. The positive side of the warning is, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The positive side of the warning has implications for who we are as God's people. And then the author wants to underscore why it is that we, we who are in the church... Must watch out. He wants to tell us why this is really not a warning for all the people out there. It's a warning for the people in here. And that is, he he rehearses the history of Israel. He asks a number of rhetorical questions. Who was it back in the Old Testament who heard the gospel, who heard the good news and yet rebelled? In other words, who were those who were grumbling and complaining in the wilderness? The answer is, it was those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. Moses. Those who appear to truly be part of God's people. And who were those whose bodies lied in the wilderness? Who died there? Answer, the same group, part of the same group of people. In other words, a bunch of people left Egypt with Moses. Not all of them made it to the promised land. And why didn't they make it to the promised land? Well, he answers that in verse 19. Because of unbelief you have to understand that the Exodus, Israel going out of Egypt, was the clearest expression of salvation in the Old Testament. It's what the prophets and psalmists look back to again and again when they want to talk about an example of God's deliverance, proof of God's power and his love. And yet the very people who who saw all the plagues come upon the uh, Egyptians and who saw the Red Sea split apart so that they could walk across the dry land and then saw the entire Egyptian army drowned in the sea, the very same people, after they traveled not very long at all, didn't believe. They didn't persevere to the end. And so the author warns them again in chapter 4, verse 1, let us fear Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. See, the author of this letter sees the people in the church, and by implication, or the people in his church, and by implication, the people in our church, as in the same basic situation as the people who came out of Egypt. You see, the word church means a called out assembly. And the word for church is even used of the people in the Old Testament. I don't think it's used in the technical sense how Jesus used it, I will build my church. But still, the people in Israel were a called out people because they came out of Egypt. And so also the church are those who have been called out of the world. We are a called out people. But just as not all of those who came out of Egypt made it all the way to the promised land, so also the author fears That not all who are called out of the world to be part of the church will actually make it to their heavenly rest. And why not? Because just like in the time of Israel, there are some who have never truly believed. And so this passage is a warning about the need to have persevering faith. If we don't have persevering faith, then we should, as this passage says, fear. Because it's not going to go well for us. Now, how are we going to apply this passage? I just kind of walked through what I think the passage is about. How are we going to apply it to our lives? Well, I want to look at two things. First, I want to look, go back and look more carefully at why this warning is necessary. We'll look at that element of conditionality again. And then I want to look more carefully at what the warning actually is. So why the warning is necessary and what the warning actually is. So that we can carefully obey. That's the goal, of course, right? So why is the warning necessary? In other words, what danger out there is the author of Hebrews so concerned about? And again, look at that, the element of conditionality, the condition. Verse 6, that if sets off the whole train of thought that the author really continues with for many uh, chapters even along the way. Verse 6, we looked at last week. We are his house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Verse 14, we have come to share in Christ, which basically means the same thing as being his house, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And what he's, he's trying to do there is to make a distinction and to say that not all who simply claim, oh, I'm a Christian are necessarily really Christians. There's a, uh, if you will, family resemblance that they have to to share. A family trait. And that trait is persevering faith. They need persevering faith. Um, One of the most difficult situations, and I use this to illustrate a point and then we need to apply it to our own lives, but one of the most difficult situations a young pastor finds himself in, and I'm thinking about me about 10 years ago, is, is you know, shaking hands after church, and, a, and an elderly woman comes up to you and says to you, I want you to pray for my son and daughter. And they say, well, he got baptized when he was seven, but then he stopped going to church when he was 10, and he's been in and out of jail, and he's on his third wife, and whenever I say anything about God, he gets angry. But you believe in once saved, always saved, right, Pastor? At that point, I start saying, um, um, a lot. Because it's not easy to answer. First of all, I'm a young pastor and have no idea what it's like to pray for a child for 40 years. I think that's, that's got to be rough and one of the hardest things in the world. And I want to affirm that once a person is in Christ, there is no way for them to then be not in Christ. But if you're in the family... You bear the family resemblance of persevering faith. We keep our confidence in God to the end. Let's see that there in verse 14. He says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Uh, Original confidence there refers to when we first become Christians. People's journey to Christ can be different and the aspects of, in which uh, they are attracted to Christ can be you know, varied. But if it's going to be true and real faith, the underlying similarity of all conversions is that we put our confidence in Christ. That's what, what it means to be a Christian, is to put your confidence in Christ. And when I'm sharing the gospel with people, often I'll, I'll give them an illustration of uh, two chairs. Um, Becoming a Christian is like moving from one chair to another. When you sit in a chair, which you're doing now, right? You have confidence in your, your chair that, or your pew that it's going to hold you up. You're, you're probably not worried that it's going to just fall and you'll land flat on your, your, your face. That, that's probably, you have confidence in it, right? Well, when we, you know, naturally, from the time we're born, we have put our confidence in our own good works in our own, um, our own character. I distinctly remember before I was a Christian, thinking to myself, well, you know, looking at the people around me, I think, I think I've lived a good enough life that God would accept me. And see, I was dead wrong there, but what I was doing there was putting confidence in my own good works. And, and then the Bible comes in the gospel comes in and actually says, no, 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 you can't put confidence in your own good works. Your own good works are like filthy rags. You need to, they're, they're like a broken chair that's not going to hold you up. And oh, how great will be the fall. So what you need to do is despair of ever putting confidence in yourself and transfer all your confidence to Christ. It's like getting up from one chair and sitting in the other one. Put your confidence in who Christ is and what he's done for you. And that is what we do to be a Christian. And this passage is telling us that the character trait of a Christian is not simply that they're going to put their confidence in Christ once, and then, okay, been there, done that. But rather, their confidence in Christ will continue to the end. That's what true Christian faith is. It continues to the end. It continues to the end because God keeps us to the end. Now, friends, this does not mean that we are perfect. Now, the Bible assumes that we are actually far from perfect. But we look to Christ again and again to cover our sins. It's actually when a Christian starts to grow and mature that I think they're in most danger of not putting their confidence in Christ. Because when we start to do things that, oh, wow, that actually was good. Hey, God was pleased with those actions. And we have this subtle temptation to get back into that other chair of our own good works. Oh, maybe I'm I'm acceptable now in order to... uh, in order to claim my confidence in God because of me. So we need to, again and again, look to Christ and hold fast our confidence in him. And then the author reinforces the warning and the necessity of that by pointing, again to, by pointing to Israel's history. When the people fell into that trap of putting their confidence not in God, Some of their ancestors were those who were in the same position they were. They heard the good news. They were geographically with God's people. But because they did not have true faith, they were never really part of the people. They were not united to those who heard by faith. And so they grumbled and they complained. And then when they stood on the brink of entering the promised land, they said to God decisively, No, I will not trust you. And they were afraid, and they lacked confidence. See, he brings up their history to let them know that this is not just a hypothetical warning. It actually happened to their ancestors. And those who do not know their history are condemned to repeat it, is what they say, right? He's telling them their history, their ancestors fell in this, to encourage them to hold more tightly to Christ. So that's the reason for the warning. It arises out of the conditionality. It arises out of the need for persevering faith. And then look at the warning that he actually gives. Look here in verse 12. This is point number two. The actual warning itself. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Leading you to fall away from the living God. The emphasis on this passage, as I said before, falls on that word, you. After you look at the failures of Israel's past, the author says, make sure you do not fall away from the living God. And we're commanded here to take care. That same word is also translated later on in Hebrews as see to it that. In other words, in light of the clear and present danger that unbelief presents to your life, you must pay careful attention to what is going on in your heart so that unbelief does not creep in. Don't let unbelief come into your heart. Guard your heart, as Solomon says. Watch your heart for unbelief. And it's kind of interesting here to compare verse 12 to verse 19. And the author is playing around with that word see. In verse 9 he says, So we see that they failed to enter because of unbelief. He's talking about the failure of of God's people in, in history. And the implication for us there in verse 12 is, You must see to it that you don't have that same unbelief. We see their failure, and that prompts us to see into our own hearts to make sure that that same failure doesn't reside in us. Notice also how the author connects what he's talking about here, the unbelieving heart, to an evil heart. He doesn't just say an unbelieving heart. He says an evil unbelieving heart. And this is the first time that word evil has showed up in the book of Hebrews. He's saying here that unbelief is evil. I don't think we, at least for me, I don't think unbelief is necessarily as evil as I should. I don't put those two together as as I should. And I think that if we don't recognize that the evilness, the vileness of unbelief, we're actually in danger of not heeding this warning because we are more okay tolerating it in our lives. But friends, unbelief is evil. It was Adam and Eve's failure to believe God's word that led them to sin, bringing death in the whole world. It was Israel's failure to believe God that led them to wander in the desert for 40 years, effectively killing an entire generation. But the ultimate evilness of unbelief lies not in the destruction it brings in its wake, but in the fact that it is such a grave dishonor to God. You see unbelief says to God, God, your character is not trustworthy. It says to God, God, you're not capable of delivering on your promises. It says to God, you aren't my highest good. It essentially says to God, I think you sending your son to die on the cross was a mistake because I'd rather seek salvation another way. Friends, that spurs God's love and assaults God's character, and it's the worst thing we can do. Unbelief is evil. Friends, how concerned then are you to look for the un- unbelief that resides in your heart? It's it's inevitable to have. Uh, here's an illustration. Here, it's inevitable to have some medical issues come up when you have five kids, right? All the parents who have even one kid, or, or yourself, right? Medical issues just come up, and it's painful to watch your kids go through a blood test, or have to stand or sit perfectly still for a CAT scan, or some otherwise painful, invasive test. But if you think there's something in your kid that could hurt your kid or kill your kid, you're going to go through with it. You're going to say, yes, do whatever you need to do to figure out what's in there and what's wrong. And you're going to do the same thing for yourself. If the doctor says it might be cancer, you say, okay, have the biopsy. If it is, I want to get rid of it. Well, friends, do you have that same tenacity to get rid of the unbelief in your heart? Well, really, the answer to that is determined by your response to The way in which scripture tells us we get unbelief out of our heart. And that is what we see in verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The way to uh, search and destroy unbelief in your heart is through relationships with one another. God has given us the job as the doctors for one another to help one another detect the unbelief in our hearts. And the author presumes that you have that unbelief in your hearts. That it is possible for you to have it. Maybe not in a lethal sense, but our hearts are always prone to wander. And how do we do that? Well, we, how, do we, how are we the doctors for one another? Well, we exhort one another daily this word exhort here is, is a very important word for the author of Hebrews because if you look at the very last paragraph in the entire book of Hebrews in, verse, in chapter 13, verse 22, um, you can flip there or just I can read it to you. The author says this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to bear with this word of exhortation. So the author sees his letter as an exhortation and he has ex- told us To exhort one another. So basically what that means is that we need to be the book of Hebrews for each other. We need to do what the book of Hebrews does for one another. And that means that we should be amazingly comforting and compassionate at times. That means we should look to... Look at sinners with the compassion that Christ has, knowing their temptations. We should speak words filled with grace and love, because most of our words, like the author of Hebrews' words, are all about Christ. But we also should not be afraid to give people warnings and call them to repent. We shouldn't be afraid to say to a brother or sister in love, brother or sister, I'm afraid that how you're living is dangerous. I'm afraid it'll bring harm to your family I'm afraid it will bring harm to the body of Christ. Notice why we need these exhortations. What does the author say here? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Friends, sin deceives. That's just what it does. And the first thing it deceives you into thinking is that you're not really sinning. You see, I think for most of us, if we realize that we were doing something wrong we would probably work on not doing it. The problem is we don't realize it. We've bought into a lie, and then we've constructed for ourselves a false reality. That's what deception is. It's when we believe ourselves and we're wrong. And oftentimes, we can't even realize that we're doing it, so we can't correct the problem. You see, if we're believing a lie, everything we we think and see and process gets filtered through that lie. So rather than changing the lie... Basically, our perspective on reality is distorted. That's another way of talking about hardening your hearts. Today, if you hear his word, do not harden your hearts. Do not believe the lie and let yourself be deceived. And you see, because because deception works in the way it does, what we so often need is somebody from the outside of our world to come in and show us what we're doing wrong. And friends... Are you willing to do that for one another? Are you willing for others to do that for you? Let me flush this out with some more questions. Are you willing to have awkward and difficult conversations with people? Are you willing to say things that others don't want to hear? Are you willing to prioritize another person's spiritual good over and against your own comfort? But not only that, are you willing to receive words of correction? Are you willing to prioritize fighting unbelief in your own heart over and against looking good before others? Do you care more about looking good before others or being good before God? I think so often we we try to use God to get ourselves to look good before others, when in reality we should be using others to make ourselves actually be good, be holy before him. Are you willing to share struggles about your life and your marriage? Couples. Are there others that you can talk to about your marriage? And not for the purpose of complaining about your spouse, but to receive correction for yourselves. Do you ask people for their observations for how you handled a situation? How was I in that meeting? Did you detect some bitterness in my heart or something? Ask If you ask people, give them permission for for them to speak to you if they think you're out of line. Tell them you want that. Are there people in your life who will speak to you about the way you speak to your spouse? Friends, what do you think you do better at? Do you think you do better at receiving words of correction? Or words of exhortation, I should say? Or giving words of exhortation? And when it comes to the exhortation that you give, is it more natural for you to be on the comforting, encouraging side or on the correcting, challenging side? Well, friends, we're all naturally better at one thing or the other. But if we're to be mature people, and our church is to be mature, we need to be able to do all of the above. That's what Hebrews does. That's what we're supposed to do for one another. I think that we need to make... This kind of exhortation that the Bible prescribes more than norm for our life as a church. I think that's going to be the next major area that we need to grow in as a church. It's not that it's absent. No, certainly not. And I hear encouraging stories and see wonderful things. But we need to build it into the culture of our life together. Friends, that's not going to be easy. Because sin is deceptive. Oh, but Christ is working in our midst. And he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Friends, in your private prayer time, plead with God that he would be growing us into that kind of culture. Will you do that? And this isn't something that just the pastors or deacons can do. Oh, we should be setting an example and modeling it to be sure. But it needs to come from the ground up. It needs to be organically part of the life of our church. We can't institute it as a program. It needs to be our way of life, who we are. And we see that because we must do it today, as long as it is called today. I love that. It's a creative way of saying always. You know, just whatever day is called today, you you do it. And that's just what we have to do. Friends, Please consider these things. And let me speak to you here if you're not a member of the church. I don't just presume that because you're not a member, you're not a Christian. Um, You could very easily have people in your lives who do this for you. But being a member of the church is a way of you saying to the pastors and to one another, yes, I want this from one another. I want the pastors to be extra concerned to watch over and protect me and help me in these ways. If you're not a member of of our church, or any church, if you're visiting with us from another church, we are welcome to be here. Obviously, it doesn't apply to you. But if you're not a member of any church, consider making that a priority. It doesn't have to be here. There are other good churches around. But that's a a step. It's not a foolproof step, but it's a step in fulfilling the commands that we are given here. Now, in closing, I want to come at this passage from one more angle. This will speak to some of you, I, I hope. I want to just look at the same idea that we've just looked at from a little bit different perspective. Um, and, and hopefully it'll, it'll resonate and make sense. This passage uh, displays for us a very interesting tension. You could even say it's an apparent contradiction. I didn't realize it at all. I uh, looked at this passage all week, but it was on a bike ride yesterday where I really kind of came together in my head. This passage speaks of two realities that are, that are almost contradictory. It speaks of confidence and maintaining our confidence firm to the end. Twice in this passage, we see the repetition of that word confidence. It even speaks of boasting in our hope. Right? So confidence, boasting, I mean, that should be the norm for our lives. But then this passage also speaks of fear. Let us fear, lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. It tells us to take care. It warns us. So how do we put these two together? It seems as if fear and confidence stands, stand in awkward uh, tension. One approach could be to say, well, obviously, well, sometimes we should have confidence and sometimes we should fear. But I don't think that quite does it because we're supposed to have confidence you know, from when we first believe until the end, kind of the whole thing. We're supposed to receive the warning every day as long as it is called today. There's this sense of pervasive confidence and pervasive warning. How do they go together? Well, I'm not sure. Ask me again in a few years, I might have a better explanation. But let me tell you a story where I think I saw them come together. And I pray this will be useful to you. This past Monday, I went to a funeral for a friend of mine. His name is Jim. Uh, about a year ago, he was diagnosed with aggressive cancer, and he died last Wednesday at the age of 64. 64. He was actually the, the father of a friend of mine through high school. And he was as committed of a Christian as I have ever seen. He modeled for me when I was a, a new Christian what being a husband and a father was all about. I learned a lot from his example. And, and he died with a perfectly clear mind. And shortly before he breathed his last breath, he made some statements that people around him wrote down. And I was convicted and encouraged by what He said, I, don't, I didn't jot them all down, but basically, he, he said that he felt the presence of God in his life so strongly. It's interesting, too. I don't think I ever really heard him speak about the theme of union with Christ in, in any time. And yet, when he was dying, he spoke a lot about how he was aware of his union with Christ, how he knew that he was, he was his, and Christ was, he said, Christ is, I am Christ, and Christ is mine. I thought that was interesting. That truth lay dormant for most of his life, but then became exceedingly important the moment before his death. And he, this, this strong awareness of God's love, and God's love for him in Christ, actually led him to speak about things that he regretted. He said, like I said, this man appeared to be remarkably godly. He was converted at age seven, I believe, and And he started teaching Sunday school at age 19, adults, and he taught all the way up until the week before he died. You know, somebody who definitely displays persevering faith. And yet, the acute presence of God in his life, he saw his sin all around him. Kind of like as you turn on a light in a room, and all of a sudden you see the the dirt in that room all the more clearly. And so, with this, this greater sense of his sin, he had a greater desire for godliness, for his own godliness. This greater desire for his own godliness was matched perfectly with confidence that he belonged to God and he knew he would see his Christ soon. This confidence that he had did not drive him to presumption, but rather to grieve over his sin all the more. And the grief over his sin did not lead him to despair, but rather to cling more tightly to Christ and thus give him more confidence. I think what we see there is confidence and if not fear strong concern going together perfectly. And friends, if we have this perspective in our lives, then naturally we will want to invite others into our lives. We'll be willing to speak hard truths to them, truths to them because we fear God more than we fear them. We're aware of who God is. We believe his word and we know that he is present. And then we'll live like that. Well, friends, we don't know how long we have on this earth. And we know that for however long it is, sin will be working to distract us and deceive us and sell us on false promises. So today, if you hear his word preached to you, which you all are, receive it, apply it to your lives, and build your lives confidently upon Christ, and open up your lives to the men and women around you, that they may speak into your life and you may speak into their life. Let's pray.